Good morning. My name is Howard Ford. I'm on the Elder Council here at First Baptist Church, Medford, Oregon. And I'll be reading from Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said unto him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are in it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather their brood under their wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the word. Thanks, Howard. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35 is our passage this morning. Let us uh, start by praying and ask God, asking God, give us clear minds and hearts to consider his word. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, that we have the opportunity to know you through your word. We pray this morning in particular that you would open our eyes to the glory of Jesus and his work to save sinners like us. God, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would believe Reveal to us those areas of our life, Lord, that we need to turn over to you for forgiveness. And God, for those areas of discouragement and darkness, that you would lift us up in encouragement to know that you have redeemed all things for the glory of your purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick reminder about the book of Luke. Luke and Acts were written by the same guy, Luke. I don't I felt like I should, it's Luke. He wrote Luke and Acts, they originally would have been together. Sometimes you might hear the book of Luke referred to as Luke-Acts, because they really uh, should be read together. If you're reading through your Bible, what I would do is read Luke, skip John, read Acts, and then go back to John. Read them together, because that uh, gives them a little more continuity. And one of the things we really want to highlight as we've been working through the book of Luke is one of its primary themes, which is... Outsiders become insiders. And we say that because the book of Luke has in mind as its audience primarily people who aren't Jewish and that they might consider the claims of Christ for salvation, that they would consider what Jesus had to say about himself and what Jesus' works testified about him. And we can recognize that the message of salvation in Christ is not only for a Jewish audience. It certainly was for the people of Israel, the Jews. But Luke wants to make the point that you don't have to be from within the Jewish community to find Jesus as your Savior. And we're going to see that today. Outsiders becomes, become insiders. We might think of it this way. What happens when the world abandons Jesus. What happens when the world abandons Jesus? Have, do, you ever feel, do you ever feel like that? Like maybe the world has abandoned God in his ways? One or two people feel that way. The rest of us, no. I feel, every day I wake up, I feel like I'm at church, walking around town. 
What happens when the world abandons God, when the world abandons Jesus, God the Son in the flesh? What happens when the world just walks away from everything that is true about God and what he has to say about people, what it means to live, to glorify God, and to fit into his kingdom? What happens? Here's what's interesting about that is every generation thinks they're the first generation to have that happen. We think, well, finally, the world has abandoned God. They thought that 50 years ago and 50 years before that and 50 years before that. See, it's happened before. And what we discover is it provides a fantastic opportunity for some. When the world abandons God, we find out it provides a fantastic opportunity, in particular, for outsiders. So the title of the message today is, When Jesus Doesn't Fit In. When you look around at the world around you and say, Jesus really doesn't have a place here. If a table was set up for there to be a banquet today, there wouldn't be a a spot reserved for Jesus. There's no room for him in the culture, maybe. And we're not the first time uh, or the first culture to have this happen. So what happens when Jesus doesn't fit in? And the first thing is this, outsiders fit into Jesus. When Jesus all of a sudden becomes an outsider, what happens? All the outsiders find Jesus. When Jesus doesn't fit in, outsiders fit into Jesus. Let me read verses 22 through 30 of Luke chapter 13. Jesus, he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold... Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. When Jesus doesn't fit in, outsiders fit in to Jesus. There was a show we used to watch more frequently when my children were younger. It's called, and it's very highbrow, high and mighty cultural TV, America's Funniest Videos. (laughs) Have you seen this show? So you're familiar. Okay. Uh, There was a a particular video, and it, it was a dog. He was carrying a very wide stick, and he came to the opening in the fence, and he tried to walk through the opening in the fence, and the stick was too wide to fit through the opening in the fence. And so hilarity ensues as he tries to run through, and the stick stops, and the dog stops because he's got the stick in his mouth. It's hilarious. It's less funny described. Hilarious. (laughs) Okay, so what does the dog do? What does the dog do? Well, he turns around and walks through backwards with the stick because the problem is not the width of the stick. The problem is the direction uh, he is walking. So he walks backwards, but the same thing, of course, happens. And so what's hilarious is how many ways and times the dog tries to walk this giant stick through this narrow opening in the gate. 
And this is the problem Jesus is describing for the people of Israel. They've got this giant stick in their mouth, and it's their religious background and tradition. And they want to find their way to God, but the problem is they can't get through it because they won't let go of those things that are holding them back from getting through the opening. So Jesus is saying here, to find me, you have to walk through the narrow door. The question he is being asked is, is will a lot of people get saved or will a few get saved? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He doesn't answer the question. He says those who do get saved walk through the narrow door, which means they fit through it. They have to go through the narrow way. They have to fit through the narrow door. So there's two things about finding Jesus that he makes clear in this passage. The doorway to finding Jesus is narrow, and the doorway to finding Jesus is closing when? Soon. So this is the two things Jesus makes clear about finding hope in the Lord through forgiveness in Jesus Christ is the way to find him is the narrow way, and the way to find him will soon be closed, and once the door is closed, no more opportunity to find him. He really is even suggesting it's hard to fit through because of this, and this is why it's hard to fit through this narrow way, is because the only way through the door to relationship with God and eternal life is God's way, that is, through Jesus. That's the only way. The reason this is hard is because we imagine there might be other ways. Or we imagine we can walk through that narrow door in the way in which we choose to do so. And Jesus is saying, no, it's a very, very narrow way. You've got to drop your giant stick to be able to walk through there. And for the people of Israel, this is the giant stick of their religious tradition. The ways in which they relate to God actually aren't relating them to God. And Jesus is saying, you will never find me unless you drop that stuff and walk through the narrow way, which is faith in Christ alone. Verses 22 through 24. Look what he says in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many will seek to enter, but will not be able to enter. Jesus here is saying that in order, in order to find relationship with God, you must, must find relationship with God the way he prescribes, which is through Jesus alone. Jesus is the only way. The only way to have relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And what he's calling the people of Israel to do is leave behind their preconceptions of, of their, their religion, their tradition. Well, I can relate to God because I'm a, a child of Abraham. I can relate to God because I go to the temple three times a year. I can relate to God because I have been circumcised. I can relate to God because I'm married within my tribe or within my people. And so they, they say, I can relate to God because, and they fill in the blank, and anything that in that blank that is not Jesus will keep you from God. Now, does this bother you? It might not bother you because you're in church. I suppose I shouldn't ask you. I would suggest it does bother you even though you might not admit it here because you're in church and you feel like you have to give polite answers. God says you only get to go to him one way. Let me uh, think about this. There's only one way to put toilet paper next to a toilet. It's the, it's the over. I don't want to be banging my knuckles against the cupboard. Right? And I, people are shaking their head. They're, they're leaving their church, withdrawing their membership so this is what we think about God in his narrow way. We think of it the way we think of the only way, which is really, in the end of the day, it's just a strongly held opinion. 
I have particular ways. I do lots of different things. And I would tell you, well, there's only one way to do that. But the way you hear that, right, is there's only one way I like to do it. And anybody who does it different is, of course, wrong. And so it's offensive if you do it different, and I, I take exception to that. And so we assume here that God is just being offensive, that there, there certainly is lots of different ways to get to God, and he's just being a jerk. He just has some strongly held opinions. And listen, all the other gods seem cool. I mean, talk to lots of different, lots of different religions. It seems like they're okay. They're like, you know what, I'm Hindu, but you want to you follow Jesus, you do you. How come the God of the Bible seems to be so uptight? We, and so we have to, this isn't what God is describing. He's not describing a strongly held opinion. He's describing the reality of the world. The reality of what is. He is God. There is no other God. The only way to relate to God is through the means in which he has provided, which is forgiveness in his son, Jesus. If you want to relate to God with some other way, you are free to do so, but you will not relate to God. I don't know who you'll be relating to. The Old Testament had numerous gods that people would worship in a variety of ways. In fact, many of them were demonically empowered, but they weren't God. So this is not God having a, a strongly held opinion. This is God saying, this is the only way to have a relationship with me is if you have been made righteous through God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so in order to find God, we have to go through this narrow way. How many ways are through that door? One. That's narrow. Now, if you like the idea of trusting Jesus for your forgiveness, that doesn't seem very narrow. That seems very accepting, doesn't it? But if you want to go a different way, that seems very narrow. Maybe it goes without saying, but most in our culture find this terribly offensive. But this is the only way to know God. The question is, do you want to know God or not? This is how you're going to know him, is by trusting his son, Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, many, I tell you, will enter, will, will seek to enter, but will not be able to. What is preventing them from being able to enter into relationship with God? They are unable to drop what they need to drop so they can dress Jesus alone. For the Jews, they don't want to drop their religious tradition. For the Gentiles, there may be a number of things they don't want to drop. But the issue is, at this point, is he's saying, the narrow way is to say, I will trust Jesus for my forgiveness and no one else. Look at verses 26, 27 to 28. He gives another sort of illustration. People will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and, and, we, and you taught in our streets. But he's going to say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you are evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what he is saying here is, is they're going to come to the door, and at a certain point, it is closing. That's what he, what he even says in verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, these come to him and say, but, but we know you. You ate and drank in our streets. And what Jesus wants the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, to understand Familiarity with the things of Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. Being familiar with the Bible is not the same thing as trusting Jesus to forgive you. Being familiar with religious notions and traditions, being familiar with religious and church language, being familiar with the weird things Christian people do and don't do, 
does not make you a believer. What makes you a believer is whether or not you have personally trusted Jesus to forgive you for your sin. And he is telling the people of Jerusalem, yeah, you might have gathered with a crowd and watched me heal a guy. You might have drank some of the wine I turned in. Uh, I turned uh, from water into wine. You may have been there. You may have uh, pictures on your Instagram from the event. It doesn't mean you trusted me. That doesn't mean the way in which you're counting on having a relationship with God is by admitting your own brokenness and taking my righteousness as your own by faith. See, the thing is, and this is true of all religious people, and I know this because I am one, it's really hard for religious people to admit that they need someone to save them. And this is the same thing with the people of Israel. They needed somebody to save them, but not from their sin. They, if they had a list of the top ten problems the people of Israel were dealing with, I don't know if sin would have made the top ten. Rome is going to be number one. Lousy Wi-Fi is number two, probably. So they have, they have needs, but sin isn't one of them. Because they're, so, they're going to be arguing, no, we're good Jews. We know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to We're not eating the bad stuff. We're only eating the, the good stuff. And, and we're being polite to our neighbor. And we're contributing to the temple. And we're, we're not breaking the Sabbath. And, and we're doing all the things we need to do. So we don't need someone to save us from our sin. We need someone to save us from our problems and so this is what's so difficult is is in this world where the world has abandoned God the religious people say but we haven't but they're not trusting Jesus the only way to find a relationship with God is to discover your great need which is for forgiveness Look with me down at the end of this section, verse 28. He's describing the people of Israel, because that's where he's speaking. In that place, that's the day when the door is closed and no more can come, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To reject Jesus is to incur judgment. This weeping and gnashing of teeth, of course, we often correlate with eternal condemnation in hell, which is appropriate biblically, but what we have here is really an expression of great regret. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is when something happens and you realize that you have suffered loss and you're not going to be able to make up that loss. This is someone going, oh man, I was so close. So they knock on the door and it won't open and they realize they missed their opportunity and this is the, oh man, once they realize what they missed, there's this great, uh, it's, it's an expression of regret, not merely physical pain of some time. And this, look what he says is going to happen. You're going to see Abraham... Isaac and Jacob. You know who these guys are? You're going to have to read Genesis. Read it after church. Abraham starts around, I don't know, Genesis 12 or something. God made some promise. I mean, give you have lots of kids, which is a problem because he's old. So is his wife. So uh, Abraham has a kid. Abraham's kid is Isaac. Ishmael as well, but we're ignoring him for now. So Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob, and Esau the red, but Jacob, and Jacob is the father of the people of Israel. So, so what he has just listed here is there's going to be the patriarchs eating inside at the banquet table with God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you were a, a Jewish person, what, what is your heart doing? Oh, man, it's on. Here we go. And then he lists some more guests that are at the table. 
He says, look, all the prophets in the kingdom of God. You've got Elijah, then you've got Elisha, and you've got Isaiah, and you've got Jeremiah, and you've got Amos, and a whole list of people. And then you've got that one prophet that said that the, 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 the altar in Israel would break apart. And King Jeroboam pointed at him and got all rallied up. And when he, when he pointed at him, his arm was all leprous. And then, and then he healed him. And then he got eaten by a lion. And it was fantastic. The Bible is amazing. And then he gets buried. And later on, King Josiah won't unbury him because he said, he's the guy that predicted I would come. So all these great and righteous prophets that suffered so greatly proclaiming the truth, they're at this great banquet. And so now the, a, your Jewish heart is just, okay, here we go. This is a bacon-free zone. This is, a, this, is a, this is a kosher, let's get it on banquet. Then who else comes? Verse 29. And people will come from the east, and the west, and the north, and the south. Who's coming? Outside. Because the world of Jesus is rejecting him. The world's rejected him, and now the outsiders find their spot. Like, oh, a guy that everybody rejects? That's us. A guy everybody is disregarded, that's us. A guy who just comes and offers me a meal, which is himself, the, the bread of his life and the sustaining power of his shed blood and the forgiveness that comes from trusting him alone. And, and so here's what's funny about walking through that narrow gate is you're never going to walk through there with your religion. But do you have to drop your sin to walk through that gate? No. That's all you got to walk through that gate. Is you walk through there and you give to him. That's what Jesus, this is why that gate is so hard. We want to walk through deserving, and Jesus, the outsider now that the world is rejecting, you don't walk through this gate deserving. The only people who figure out how to do this are the undeserving, the outsiders, the outcasts, the north, the south, the Gentiles. The ne'er-do-wells, these aren't religious people. These are just dirty, rotten sinners. The Gentiles are going to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus. And the religious insiders are going to regret that they missed him because they wanted their religion more than they wanted relationship with God. The reality is what Jesus is saying. The reality is that worldwide, Gentiles will respond to Jesus in faith. It doesn't mean that Jews don't. Of course, they, they do. It's a, but in the moment that Jesus was living broadly, the Jews of his days rejected his message. His message was a, a message of forgiveness from sin, and the Jews didn't need it. The Gentiles said, we need some of that action. And we see this all the time. Those with great need, those who recognize their shame and regret, those who have a history of darkness that they wish wouldn't have happened. They, uh, we, we sit sometimes on the couch and say, oh man, if I just would have done that differently, I wouldn't carry this great burden. And Jesus said, you're my people. I came to take that burden. I came to give you uh, cleansing from your sin. Righteous people don't respond to it because he's not selling anything they want. When Jesus doesn't fit in, outsiders fit into Jesus. The message of Christ is quite simple. Religious preferences will keep you from Jesus. That's what he's talking about, that narrow gate. 
Religious preferences will keep you from Jesus. Might suggest that we put our religion down and walk in and take his forgiveness. We're not doing as good as we think we are. In many ways, Jesus says there is a great advantage to not being very religious. Now, some of, you, some of us grew up in the church. We said, no, there was a great advantage to it, and I agree. I agree. I, don't, I wouldn't trade it. But there's also a recognition of a life of brokenness that creates a great sense of need. And Jesus is saying, which would you prefer, to not realize you need me or to think you don't? Because if you don't think you need Jesus, you won't walk through the door and you will find judgment. Religious preferences will keep us from Jesus. What happens if we can't drop the stick? Let's look at the rest of this passage. I'm feeling guilty today. I'm talking about salvation and feeling guilty because I preached two sermons last week. It was just the one service. Some of you were here, so I'm trying not to... I'm feeling guilty. Like I don't want to make them sit through two hour-long sermons in, in a row, so I want to make sure we're efficient with our time. Look at verses 31 through 35. Howard read it for us. What happens if you can't drop the stick? When Jesus doesn't fit, insiders find themselves on the outside. At that very hour, some Pharisees came up to him and said, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Now, we don't know if these Pharisees were looking out for Jesus' best interest or not. It, it doesn't really say. It's not terribly clear. Remember, not all the Pharisees were totally anti-Jesus. A, a couple of Pharisees got saved, right? Paul being one of them later on in life, but Jesus had a, a great conversation in uh, John chapter 3 with the Pharisee that, that believed. So we don't know here if they were being, having animosity or not, but the one thing it does seem like is they would like him to go away. They would like him to go away. Now, if you were getting ready to go out with a buddy and you're going to go eat, let's say you're going to go eat something, and you're, say, let's say you're craving seafood. If you're craving McGrath's, you're going to be disappointed. They're closed, if you didn't know. If you had plans to meet somebody there today, uh, take a picnic. Say you're craving seafood and your buddy wants to eat burgers. Uh, this is a silly illustration, but just go with me. You have a choice. You can eat seafood alone or eat burgers with your buddy. Those are the choices. One of you is not going to get what you want. And what the people of Israel are telling Jesus, we'll take our religion without you. What we, you know what would be great? Is, is if you would leave because we are going to keep what we want and if you're not going to fit into that you, you want to leave in fact oh we think Herod's trying to kill you so this is what happened when Jesus doesn't fit in the establishment those who have a stake in how things are going those who have a something to lose in the way the world works if Jesus isn't going to fit into their world then the goal is to get rid of Jesus and that's exactly what insiders do. See you later, buddy. Rejecting Jesus in order to hold on to our preferred religious norms just means we're going to eat alone, that is, without Jesus. And this passage here describes what it means to be without Jesus. It's judgment. To be separated from God is to experience judgment. So these Pharisees tell Jesus, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Now, Jesus was in a lot of danger Herod wasn't his biggest fear, was it? I mean, Herod, really. In fact, he sort of says, tell that fox. Really? Herod? Okay. 
So what was Jesus in danger from? He was going to lose his life. Why was he going to Jerusalem? He wasn't on vacation. The goal was, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. That's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go there and die. And they come to you. Herod's going to kill you. Have you not seen the agenda? This is is not a problem. Jesus' life is in danger. Who's trying to kill him? Number one, God the Father. Why did Jesus get sent to mankind? God sent him to die. He was sent. This has been the plan the whole time. When did the plan start? Before the creation of the world. This is not a new plan. We're not spitballing. We're not throwing stuff against the wall hoping it sticks. This has always been the plan. The Father sends the Son. The Son willingly and obediently obeys everything the Father tells him to do up to and including death on a cross. Remember that conversation between the Son and the Father? I think it was the night before he died. My Father, if it's possible that this cup could be passed for me, that'd be great. But if not, what is it? Not my will, but yours be done. Doesn't mean Jesus didn't want to die for us. He just means he didn't want to experience all that suffering. None of us would. So the Father's going to kill him. So this is what's funny. The Father sends Jesus to die, and they say, Herod wants to kill you. I got problems. Herod is one of them. He is. Yeah, whatever. Really, Herod? I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. Really, Herod? is You're bringing up Herod. Okay, that might make some people quake in their boots. That's not making Jesus quake in his boots. Who else wants to kill him? The Jews want to kill him. I think the Jews are more dangerous than Herod. But the Jews also want to kill him. So the people that Jesus came to save want to kill him. That's personal. And Herod also wants to kill him. Herod isn't a problem here. So Jesus' enemies want to get rid of Jesus or discredit Jesus. So if he stays, he dies. Maybe that means they win. Unfortunately for them, he comes back to life. Can't keep God dead. Or if Jesus turns tail and runs, he's discredited. What kind of prophet runs at the first sign of danger? What kind of prophet flees as soon as somebody threatens his life? But Jesus said, whatever, I'm going to Jerusalem. Jesus is on plan, and he's going to stay on plan because Jesus' plan is to die on the Father's terms. Look at verse 32 and 33. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow for the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, we've done the math. He's not three days from Jerusalem. He's still got some time. He's using an idiom, an illustration. He says, I got work today, tomorrow, and I'm going to get Jerusalem in a few days. And when I get there, what's the goal? To do what prophets do in Jerusalem. Die there. That's the goal. That's the mission. So if you're telling me I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, hey, works out perfect for me. That's what's on the agenda. Jesus' plan is to go and die in Jerusalem on the Father's terms as a sacrifice for sin. The Jews, more than anyone else, should have recognized this because they have the religious system that has been teaching them since they were infants, that in order to atone for sin, blood must be shed. Every year, the priest would sacrifice an animal and put the blood in a bowl and go into the temple 
put it on the horns of the altar, put it on the ark. And there, there was an entire religious system designed to communicate you need someone to stand in for you because of your sin. That's, all, that's what that Old Testament law did over and over and over again. You're a sinner. How do you know you're a sinner? Because you've got to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And what happens because of sin? Something dies. But did those animals ever take away their sin? How do we know the animals didn't take away their sin? I think I heard it. Was that maybe Diana? Because they had to keep doing it. The book of Hebrews makes that point. If it would have worked, you only would have had to do it once. They would have built the tabernacle in the wilderness, offered the sacrifices, then leave the tent behind. You're done. Because it worked. We know it didn't work because they kept doing it over and over and over again. There's two problems. Number one, the blooded sheep of goats cannot take away sin. Number two, people keep on sinning. Have you noticed that? Now, I know none of you do, but your friends and family do, and you've noticed. We notice other people's sins. We, I am thankful there is someone who will forgive this Yahoo. Thankfully, I don't need much forgiveness, right? That's what we all tend to think. And so this is the thing about the, about the law. It communicated to the people of Israel. You're a sinner still, and you still need forgiveness, and your sacrifices aren't fixing it. We need a better sacrifice. So the people of Israel should have understood that. And they should have read the book of Isaiah, which says, the servant will come and suffer, and he will be pierced for our transgressions. None of this is new information, we understand. When Jesus comes, nobody was flabbergasted. Oh, we had no idea Messiah was going to come and suffer. Isaiah's been written already. And Jesus, this is Jesus' plan. The Messiah, Son of God, God in the flesh, God is human, to come and stand in as a substitute for any sinner who will say, I trust that he can handle my sin. Look at the wording he uses. Behold, I cast out demons and cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I what? Finish my course. What do you say at the cross? This is from John's Gospel. It is finished. He was on task, had a mission, never early, never late, never incomplete. Everything was done precisely when it was meant to be done and completely the way it was supposed to be done. And so he on the cross took upon himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the sin of humankind was on him. So Jesus' mission is to go to his cross that you and I could put our trust in him and say, I believe what he did works for me. That his payment pays for my sin. Insiders don't get it. Insiders don't need a sacrifice. I've got my religion. In fact, if you've ever been to any really, really nice temples, where would you rather be? A nice temple or maybe a worship center like this? Or standing on a forsaken hill looking at a guy dying on a cross? Which sounds like a better use of your time? That's what the Jews of the day said. The temple's nice. If you say Herod fixed it up, nice. Why, why would we come out here to worship? Outside the camp where it's unclean? Insiders miss it. What was Jesus' view of these insiders who rejected him? Let's see. It's really, really interesting. It's helpful for us to remember this. 
Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. He's, I think, referring to the high priest's son, Zechariah, stoned to death. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Even though his world rejected him completely, Jesus' love and compassion for them was deep and always there. Even those that he knew would reject him and murder him. Even unresponsive Israel, his heart was broken. He said, oh man, I'd, I've yearned for so long to gather you together under my wings. Wings of grace and mercy and loving kindness. Even in these moments of rejection, Jesus is reaching out. Even though they will reject it. Just a quick side note. That's really, really helpful for those of us who struggle with sin. Because some of us every now and then, it's the people who couldn't be here today, nobody here. We think we've sinned so bad that God is going to let us into heaven just because he promised, but he doesn't want to. We think we finally have figured out how to make God really, really irritated. Look at how Jesus is behaving here. Those who are going to reject him and murder him, he's just, his heart's broken for him. Oh, man, I wish I could gather. I wish you would. That's, what, that's Jesus' perspective on those of us who are struggling. Get back in here. I got you. I, I want to I bring you in like a, a mother brings her hens in to be covered. Verse 35, behold, Jerusalem, your house is forsaken. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem has fallen spiritually here already. Eventually, they will fall, fall militarily as well. This, of course, is about 30, 33 AD when these words were spoken by our Savior. And Rome is going to completely destroy Jerusalem about 40 years later. Here, their spiritual rejection of God is complete. But eventually, their physical fallenness will be most pronounced. She has abandoned her king. Insiders are now the outsiders. Because they wouldn't let go of their religious preconceptions. I know how I'm supposed to get to God, and I don't need Jesus to tell me how I'm supposed to find God. The insiders are now on the outsiders. And, who are, and who's in sitting at the banquet table? All those sinners who just simply said, I'll take Jesus. I'll take him up on his offer. I'll take Jesus. When Jesus doesn't fit in, outsiders fit into Jesus. So those who recognize their brokenness, their sin and rebellion against God, when Jesus doesn't fit in the world at all, those kinds of people find him because we recognize how much we need Jesus. And insiders, those who are vested in things staying the same and not admitting that I need help, will find themselves on the outside. The tragedy, is, uh, the tragedy that Jesus is describing here, I think, has been repeated often and continues to do so. The tragedy is thinking you are in when you are not, thinking you have a relationship with God when you don't. Let me give you a list of things you can't count on to save you. Are you ready? You can't count on your parents being good Christians. First of all, I know your parents are not that good at it. So if you're going to count on them... I can't help you. You can't count on going to church all the time. You know, when, you get that, when, you, when you die and show up and God's going to decide if you're judged or not, he doesn't ask how often you went to church. 
having the right theology, being right on, on all the right topics. Yeah, there's not an entrance exam. Did you not think? Goodness. Being good won't get you into heaven. I think we know that, but let me just remind you. Being well-liked by religious people won't get you into heaven. You know, I know a bunch of Christians. They seem to really like me. I don't have any problems with them. They don't seem to have any problems with me. I get along with church people. I've been around church people my whole life. I don't know if that's a good thing, buddy. <laughs> you might get to heaven. Hey, church people like me, and I don't know what the answer might be. We don't. I don't know. Maybe you're super generous. Give away lots of time, lots of resource. Help lots of people. Won't get you to heaven. It's nice. Keep doing it. You should help people. How do you know God will accept you? Because you've got the right values, you've got the right morals, you've got the right political uh, positions, you're really helpful, you're really kind, you've got the right views, you've got, a, you've got, a, bunch of, you've got a long list of good things that, that you do, and these are all really, really good things that might keep you from trusting Jesus. Because the only way to trust Jesus is to admit you're not good enough. One reformer said it this way, the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. That's it. That's all we have to offer. Is we come to the Lord with a, with a boatload of sin and say, here's what I got. I got my sin. What do you got? And he says, I have forgiveness. It's handled. The tragedy is for, would be for you to think you're in because you've got it dialed in and find out you don't. Because the only way, the narrow way, is to admit you're a sinner and receive salvation because Jesus forgives sinners. Second thing I wanted to mention was this. Um, you know, for those of us who are in Christ, we're going to a banquet, and we get to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That sounds like fun. I don't know what they're like in, in person. I've read about them. That could be fun. How do you get ready for this banquet? Let me put it this way. Spend your life becoming like Jesus, not by copying religious people. Get ready for that banquet by becoming like Jesus, not by copying religious people. Rest in Jesus at the banquet comes from trusting him today, not trusting how religious people tell you you ought to dial your life in. When I was a kid, uh, we would, you know, say grace at holidays, and oftentimes it would be at my, my grandfather's house. And this is just an observation. He's a little kid, I remember that. You know, my grandfather's a good guy. And uh, he's a believer. And, uh, but I noticed when he prayed for the Christmas meal or the Easter meal, he prayed in King James. <laughs> I didn't know. He didn't talk in King James. He talked like a normal guy. And then when he started praying... There's a whole bunch of these and nows. I mean, we sing a song with the word wort in it. Did you notice that? Where, where else in life do you sing wort? You know, Drake isn't putting wort in any of his songs. That's for the kids. They don't get it. They don't get it. He prayed the King James. Why is my grandfather praying the King James? I have no idea. I, I never asked him because back then you, would, you didn't ask questions like that. Shut up. Do what you're told. My, my hunch is 
it's modeling religious people. Instead, in our praying, and I'm, again, not speaking ill of my grandfather, but let's model people that remind us of Jesus. Let's, let, let's, let's model a people that remind us of what it looks like to need Jesus. Remember that Pharisee who prayed, thank you, God, probably in King James, that I'm not like this tax collector. And, and how did the tax collector pray? He wouldn't even look to heaven. Here's the guy that knew his need. My God, have mercy on me a sinner. There's a Jesus-y prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Model people that remind you of Jesus. When you read about Jesus in the Bible, look for people that don't look religious. Look for people that act like Jesus. Ignore people that have something to prove or, or want to use their whole life to make a religious or political point. Instead, look for people that have life in them. You know, it, it, sometimes you can't even tell what it is, but you can tell when you hang around these kind of people, there's just life there. There's warmth. There's hope. Model those kinds of people. I guarantee you, you'll, 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 you'll take off all of the religious people in your life. And that's also a very Jesus-y thing to do. Last thing I want to point out, and then we'll, we'll close with this. Let me find it here. Uh, verse 33 again. <clears throat> Let me just make an observation about Jesus here. Go and tell that fox, Herod, behold, I cast out demons for four cures today, and tomorrow, the third day, I finish my course. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Here's the thing about Jesus. He was on task, diligent focus on the task at hand. One writer said this way, one of the marks of successful people is they have the ability to, to have intense focus on one activity and remove all distractions. And here we have Jesus saying, I got a job here, and here's what is going to happen. And one of the things we can emulate about Jesus is this focus on what matters, this attention and and an intentional focus on what really matters. You do this in your own life. You set aside time. You say, yeah, I've got a project I want to work on the shop, or I'm going to go out and maybe do a form of recreation. I'm going, to, I'm going to set aside time so that I can really put effort and focus into this thing. And the question is, do we do the same kind of thing when it comes to our relationship with Jesus? See, Jesus, when he thinks about his relationship with us, he does so with a great level of intention and focus. And the question is, when we think about our relationship with Jesus, do we do the same thing? Do we approach it with some level of intentionality and, and focus? When we think about our time in the Bible, is it, uh, is it a time where I'm, I, have a, I have a goal here? I want to know something of God. I want to know something of his kingdom. I want to know something. Uh, I want to experience the beauty of Jesus through his word. When we approach God in our time of prayer, is it a matter of checking off boxes so we can say, I had a prayer time today? Or do we have a level of intention and focus like Jesus did? Say, I got a job to do here. I need to intervene on behalf of those I care about in prayer. One of the things Jesus shows us is these practices aren't ritual. These are things we do to know the Lord because he showed us what it looks like to be focused on the most important things. One of the things we can do 
is approach our relationship with Jesus the way he approached his relationship with us, is have intention and focus. When Jesus doesn't fit in, outsiders find Jesus, insiders find themselves on the outside. God, we thank you for the grace you've shown us in Jesus, and we thank you for the joy of knowing all that you have done to draw us into relationship with you. God, we have to admit that we don't really recognize or understand everything you went through to create the way for us to have a relationship with you. But nonetheless, uh, Lord, we are grateful that you would offer forgiveness and grace and kindness to us for nothing more than just trust. God, I pray right now for those of us here who, who don't need you that we have created in our mind all kinds of reasons why we don't need forgiveness from you. I would pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do, which is bring conviction. A recognition of the condition of our hearts as broken because of sin. And I would pray, God, in this moment that there would be people even here who would recognize they need forgiveness in Jesus and would trust you. Even in our hearts, we can pray, God, I trust you to forgive me because Jesus died for me. God, I also pray for those of us who have known you for a while, and as we have gotten to know you and spent years and years knowing you and your word, it seems that over time we can look less like you and more like the religious leaders. God, would you break our hearts again for our need of Jesus? Would you show us those ways where we need to step away from religious ritual, preferences, traditions, and instead, God, just be reminded again, it's just Jesus, that he gives us new life, he gives us purpose, and he gives us hope. God, we thank you for how much you love us. We can't wait till you return. Until that day, Lord, keep us close. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?